All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor at Midtown Church, and so glad that you're joining us. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our time together in the Word today. But before we get into that, let me ask you a question. Oh, have you ever been given a job to do but, uh, and the resources to do it, but you decided you didn't actually want to use the resources that you were given and you're going to just kind of figure it out on your own? Like, uh, you know, I, I could think about trying to put Ikea furniture together. Have you ever decided, like, you know, like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't need these instructions, right? These squiggly lines. I'm going to figure this out on my own. I've done that many times, decided not to use instructions. Never has worked out for me. Never once have I actually built something that was sturdy as a result. But my favorite story of a time where someone was given a job to do, given the resource to do it, but did not use those resources to do it, and it turned out disastrously for them, is a, is a story that happened to my brother, Ben. And uh, many of y'all know Ben. Ben's part of our church, and uh, he's in here somewhere, I think, unless he's hiding, um, because this story is great. So my brother and I, we, um, we, we uh, both, in college, we were both bus drivers for College Station ISD. That's one of, uh, and so I had a set route that I would drive every day, set kids, I would drop off every single day, uh, and so it was easy. But my brother, his first year, he was actually a substitute bus driver, which I don't even know you knew existed, and is, is like is about as low on the totem pole as you can get. I'm not even a bus driver, I'm a substitute bus driver. But it was hard for him because as a substitute bus driver, um, he didn't have a set route. And so he didn't have a set kid that so he would drop off every day. So he's always having to learn a new route. And uh, that was, that's difficult. Well, on this specific day, uh, it was raining. And he was driving a new route, new kids. And he didn't know where he was going. But he didn't really want to look at the map that he was given. Because, you know, it's, it's raining. It's kind of hard. It was like before we had like Google Maps on our phone. And so you're trying to figure out how to, like, how to get around. And so he decides, you know, you know what, I'll just ask the kids where I should go. And so he turns and he asks the elementary age kids on his bus, hey, will you just tell me, like, you know how to get home, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, tell me where to go. So he just starts relying on like a second grader to navigate his whole bus route home. And as you can imagine, no surprise here, that didn't work out so well. And so <laughs> he starts just driving the kids, like, turn right here, turn left here. And he's like, ended up like doing circles for a little while. And then the people in the bus start getting upset because they're on the bus forever. And so they start complaining. And finally, Ben's like, oh man, this is not working out. I don't know what to do. And he asks the kid, okay, no, tell me, really, where do I go? And the kid says, turn down this road. And so he turns down this road, and it's kind of a long road, and that ends in a cul de sac. And that's a problem when you're driving a bus because the bus actually couldn't navigate the turn on the cul-de-sac. So you're down this long road in a bus stuck when you're not dropping off the kids. The kids are all mad. It's raining. And now Ben's trying to figure out, okay, I got to back this bus all the way down this long neighborhood road. And then on top of all of that, the kids are infuriated. And so they start pelting him with tacos. You know, tacos. Yeah. They start pelting him with paper. And then somehow a chant gets started. And I kid you not, they start chanting, you suck. You suck. <laughs> Is that not awesome? <laughs> I'm so glad that didn't happen to me. So, uh, when you are given a job to do, and you're given the resources to do it, but you don't utilize those resources, it can end up as a disaster and a, a, a very funny story. And that's what happened with my brother. Well, I, I, I tell you that because 
<laughs> we're, uh, we're continuing today the series that we started two weeks ago in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the first seven chapters in the book of Acts. In this series, we're calling the birth of a mo- of movement. And what, we're, what we see in the first seven chapters is how the church got started. This movement of God got started uh, in Jerusalem to have this profound impact on their city. And then that spills out into the entire world, having a profound impact on the whole world, even impacting us here today. But that's later on in Acts. But the first seven chapters is all how it got started. And what we see in these seven chapters is that uh, God has given us something that would enable us to be a part of his movement. And that he's also given us a job to do. He's called us to be his witnesses. And the thing is, is that we have so much to learn from the very first uh, church. But the thing that we're going to learn today, and I hope God teaches us today in his, through his word, is I think perhaps one of the most important things we can learn out of the whole book. Because what we'll see today is that God has given us a resource. He's given us a power that will enable us to do what he's called us to do. And that power, guys, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In fact, today we're going to look at the actual birth of the church. And we're going to be in Acts 2, verses 1 through 41. If you want to go ahead and turn there or pull that up on your phone, you can. But that's where we're going to be. And that, in this passage, is the story of the birth of the church, the very first day of the, of the church. And the event that marks the beginning of the church is the descent of the Spirit. It's the pouring out of the Spirit. And so uh, for many of us, sadly, um, the the Holy Spirit is rather mysterious. Like if you are a Christian and you maybe even grown up in church, there is still a large percent of you that has a very vague understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is. And that, uh, you know, the Bible teaches that uh, the uh, God of the Bible, true God, is one God, three persons. That he's a Trinitarian God. I don't have time to explain any of that. But uh, there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we hear a lot about the Father. We hear a lot about the Son. But when it comes to the Spirit, for many, there's kind of a question mark. Like, okay, well, you know, yeah, like, he's God. But, like, what's he do? And <laughs> what's the deal with him? And if that's where you are, then I hope that this message will be really helpful for you because we get to see in this passage, we get to see our need to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to see two signs of the Spirit's filling, and then we're going to see how to receive the gift of the Spirit. And then we're going to hold messages on the Holy Spirit because the birth of the church happened as a result of the pouring out of the Spirit. And we need the Spirit in order to do the job that God has called us to do. But here's the thing. Many of us, because we're not sure who the Holy Spirit is, or uh, for other reasons, many of us are like my brother with the map, <laughs> right? Well, he had a map. He knew where he could have figured out where to go, but he didn't utilize the resource he was given to do the job that he was given. And guys, we do the same thing. To do the job that God has given us to do, we have to have the Holy Spirit. But most of us neglect him or unaware of even who he is, what he does, or don't feel a need for him. And as a result, either we, we, we don't do the job that God's called us to do because we're not compelled to do it, or we try to do the job God's called us to do, 
but we try to do it at our own strength. And so that leads to frustration and burnout and fruitlessness. And so today we're going to see, hey, let's, let's recognize our need for the Spirit. That God would then move us to be filled with the Spirit that we would join in what he's doing. Utilizing the resources he's given us to do the job he's given us to do. Okay, that's all in way of setup. Let's jump into the passage and begin. I'll try to explain what I mean by all of that. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and I'm supposed to go all the way through to the end of, or to verse 41. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm going to pretty much just be in verses 1 through 13 and then reference the rest of the passage. And so let me read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll unpack it. Starting in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, they being the 120 that had gathered, that Justin uh, talked about last week. So that's Jesus' followers, 120 of them. They were all together in one place. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Perinthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. All right, so it's a lot going on in those verses. Very interesting stuff, right? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask the question that the crowd asked in verse 12, which is, what does this mean? Right? What, what does this mean? What's, what is all this that's happening in this passage? What, what's it mean? So let's begin by, uh, by uh, taking that question and applying it to verse 2. Right in verse 2, remember, it says this. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So you think, okay, what, what, is it, what does that mean? What's, what's the significance of that description? Well, I think the significance of that description is this, that Luke, who's you know, writing this, he, he, he's using a simile right, to try to explain this, this crazy sound that they heard, and if you keep reading verse 5, it talks about how everybody, even those outside of the house, the whole area of Jerusalem, they all heard this crazy sound. And what Luke is saying is like, they heard this sound, like blowing of a violent wind. Some, something was coming from outside of them to come and rest on Jesus' followers. And I think Luke is trying to make that distinction, trying to draw that out, just to simply say that what happened on this day was not a group of people had an internal psychological experience that they had this power that came from within them. He's saying that no, this, there's this power that came from outside of them to rest on them. And I draw that out for this reason. Because in our culture, friends, one of the predominant messages, especially for our age group that we got all growing up in school, is that, hey, you have 
all that it takes to do all that you dream to do within you. That within you, you've got what it takes to make your dreams come true, right? I mean, we all hear those messages, and like, I'm not against that. Like, I'm not trying to throw stones at positive messaging and trying to give people confidence. There's a lot of good to that. But it's important for us as followers of Christ to recognize that that is not true when it comes to living an eternally significant life. To live a life that matters beyond our time here. We actually don't have what it takes within us to really know God, to know his love for us, to know how he has served us, to enjoy God, and to be compelled to serve him and able to serve him in a significant way. We don't have what it takes within us to do that. We need a power from outside of us to enable us to do that. And I think Luke is trying to drive home what Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, the key theme of the whole book of Acts. When Jesus gathered his disciples and said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, Jesus is saying, hey, don't, don't go do this job I'm giving you without the power that I'm going to give you, without the resource I'm going to give you. First wait, and that's what they did. And then they had the Spirit come on them in power, which then enabled them to do the job that he had called him to do, the job that they were unable to do apart from this outside power. And guys, here's my question for you. Do you recognize your need for the Holy Spirit to be able to live the life that God's called you to live, to know him, enjoy him, and serve him? Is it regularly on your mind, I need the Holy Spirit? I'm depending on the Holy Spirit. Spirit, fill me. I can't do this life. I can't live an eternally significant life without you. Are those thoughts that ever enter your mind? Or is this Holy Spirit just kind of this vague mystery or just not even on your mind at all? See, I think many of us live that way. But the disciples, they understood they cannot do what God had called them to do, what Jesus had called them to do. And they can't even enjoy the love of God without the power of the Spirit. And so they waited for the Spirit to come. And here, this is what Luke says, from outside of them came this power. Picks up again in verse 3. He says, um, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so let's again ask the question, what, is, what does that mean, right? Tongues of fire resting on them. That's, that's interesting imagery. Well, I love what um, Tim Keller, uh, pastor in, uh, uh, in New York, he says about this part of, uh, in this passage. When preaching on this, he says, okay, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, the imagery of of the uh, presence of God coming as fire is rich with significance. In fact, just think about it. Like in, in, in uh, Genesis 15, God uh, appears to Abraham when he's making a covenant with him, and he appears as a, uh, um, a, a, a blazing torch. And when he appears to Moses the first time in Exodus, in, in Exodus 3, he appears as what? As a burning bush, Right? And then when he comes down on Mount Sinai to appear to the people of Israel in Exodus 19, he comes down as fire and smoke. 
And then uh, like, uh, when he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness at night, he does that as a pillar of fire. And when Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, he sees fire and lightning everywhere. And so uh, every time, or in the Old Testament, oftentimes the, the presence of God, when the, the unique presence of God shows up, he shows up as fire, and that fire is intolerable. It's overwhelming for the people. In fact, in some cases, it's fatal for people. But guys, here, what you have is that you have the fire of the presence of God show up. And it rests on Jesus' followers, each and every one of them. And in that sense, guys, you could say that every one of the believers there becomes their own burning bush. For the presence of God, the unique presence of God has come to rest on them. And this is, guys, hear this, on each one of them, Luke draws that out here. So he's not saying just on the apostles. He says on all of the 120, men and women, from the biggest leaders to the person who never gets named, mentioned by name in Scripture, all of the followers of Jesus, the very unique presence of God comes to rest on them, to indwell them, to fill them. It's, it's profound. Now, but we could still ask, okay, well, that, that's neat, right? But what, what does that mean? The presence of God has come to fill Jesus' followers. Like, what's the significance of that? What does the presence of God, the Spirit of God actually do? Well, what we see in this passage is that there are two signs that you are filled with the Spirit. And when you see these two signs of the Spirit's filling, it also gives us insight into what the Spirit does, what His work is in our life. And so I want to walk through those two signs with you, all right? The first sign is this. First sign of the Spirit's filling is that you become uh, joyfully fearless. Or I say it this way, joyful fearlessness is a sign of the Spirit. Now, where do I get that from? Well, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's made clear in what you see the disciples do once they are filled with the Spirit. So what do they do? They spill out, out of this room that they were in, they spill out into the streets of Jerusalem and they start proclaiming the gospel. They start talking about the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Now this, guys, don't miss this. This is a significant change for Jesus' followers. If you're familiar with the Bible, especially the gospel accounts, Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll remember that at the end of the gospel accounts, the disciples of Jesus are shown to be fearful, scared men. You remember, like, when Jesus is arrested, all of the disciples, they scatter. They run away. And, like, on the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter denies even knowing Jesus three times. He doesn't even want people to know that he's associated with Jesus. And then in John chapter 20, after Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that the disciples are locked in a room hiding from the Jewish authorities. Like they are scared, fearful men. And yet, 
what we see here, once they're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's this profound change in them. Like their entire disposition changes. In fact, it changes so much that the people that are in the crowd see them and hear what they're saying. Some of them respond by saying, hey, these guys are drunk, right? I mean, these guys have just had too much wine. That's what explains this. Now, think about this. Why would they say that? Like, are they stumbling around? Are they stammering? (laughs) Is that why they think they're drunk? No, it's something else. I think the reason they say that, they think that they've had too much wine, is the same reason that Paul in Ephesians 5.18, later on in Scripture, will, will connect not being drunk on wine with, instead, being filled with the Spirit. And I think, Paul, why do you make that connection, filled with spirit and, and wine? Or why did the crowd make the connection of the people, the disciples, Jesus' followers, being filled with the spirit and thinking that they are drunk? Like there's something about being filled with the spirit that gives off a similar impression that drunk people give off, right? That's interesting. Like what in the world? What, what would that be? Well, guys, I'll tell you. It's joyful fearlessness. I mean, everyone who you know, knows someone who's been drunk before. Um, <laughs> knows that one of the signs of being drunk is that you, you lose your inhibitions. You just kind of like, you're like, wee, right? That's fun. You're happy and, and you're, not a, you're not worried about the things going on in your, in your life and you're not worried about what other people think about you as much and you're just free, just joyful fearlessness. But what happens with the disciples is like when they spill out of this room and they are not worried about what the crowd thinks about them. They're just declaring the wonders of God with this joy that the crowd thinks, okay, this is, man, like this is, they look like they're drunk. But here's what I want to point out. The joyful fearlessness that comes from the Spirit is radically different than the joyful fearlessness that comes from alcohol. For how does alcohol make you joyfully fearless? It makes you that way by making you stupid, right? I mean, honestly, alcohol is a depressant, right? Meaning that it depresses your brain functions. And so the reason that you have more joy and you care less about what people think about you is because you're less aware of reality. You're stupider. You really are because of that's what alcohol does to you. But guys, hear this. The Spirit, being filled with Spirit, makes you joyfully fearless, not by making you less aware of reality, but by actually making you more aware of reality. You see, one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit is that He comes in and He assures you of the Father's love for you and your relationship to Him. He as your father and you as his child. For example, think about when Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry. What does he hear? The Spirit descends upon him and he hears God say what? He says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You think, okay, well that's Jesus, right? But in Romans 8, 16, we're told for all Christians... That God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out. I'm sorry, 
Spirit, I'm sorry, I messed up. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That this is what the Spirit does. He testifies with our heart that we're his children. And then, as I just alluded to, Galatians 4, 6, we're told that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This is the same thing. This is the Spirit's work in our lives that we, as the Spirit comes in, he fills us with the knowledge of God's love for us, that he, God's desire for us, and that God is our Father and that we are his children. Or think about what Romans 5, 5 says, where we're told that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, one of the primary roles of the Spirit is to come in and tell us about the Father's love for us. And how does the Spirit do that? Well, in John 14 and in John 16, when Jesus is talking about how he's going to send the Spirit after he ascends back to the Father, he says that the Spirit will take all that I have told you and he will make it manifest it for you. Meaning, the things that Jesus has said that you know in your head, the Spirit will come and make it real to your heart. I mean, he will take the objective truths that make take these objective truths about that God loves you, that he's your father, that you're his child, and he'll make it real to you. And when the Spirit does that, friends, what results? Joyful fearlessness. Because you know that God loves you. God loves you. And if he loves you, then why fear anything? Think, what does this look like? Well, let me give you a short example from, you know, somewhat recently this summer. Uh, many of y'all know this, but I, we got a call. I got a call from AISD that said that uh, uh, this building where we meet, Baker Center, has sold and that we have three weeks to find a new location to move out. And like, like I don't know how much you would understand, but to me, like, that was a crazy thing. Like, how do we find a place for 200 people to gather in Central Austin, you know, in three weeks? And like, uh, it's like, so my head's spinning. And at the same time, I had also found out my dad had cancer, and uh, which he has been healed from. And so praise God for that. But, uh, you know, there, my world was just, it felt very heavy. <laughs> and I was completely, like, just my, my mind was spinning. I was anxious and worried. And I was that way for a couple days. Now, I, I remember vividly, though, I was uh, you know, out on the porch, and I was reading the Word, and I was praying about all this stuff. And there, there came this moment where things that I knew, truths that I had been even rehearsing about who God is and about His love for me, those things went from being in my head to coming home to my heart. And I, all of a sudden, knowing that, okay, the God who created the universe loves me to the stars and won't withhold his own son from me and who Jesus didn't withhold his own life from me but willingly died to forgive me that I could be reconciled to God, that he'd be my father and I'm his child. And these truths, again, that I knew in my head came home to my heart in such a profound way that though the circumstances had not changed at all, we still were having to find a new place to meet and all that, I all of a sudden was filled not with worry and stress, but with joy and courage. Because that was the work of the Spirit. Now God, I'll just kind of 
rest of the story. Just this week, we found out that we were for sure getting to meet in Lee Elementary and have the date when we're moving there, which is October 29th, and so the end of this month, so praise God for that. You don't know what I'm talking about, then ask somebody later. I don't have time to get into it, but it's going to be awesome. But um, anyways, the circumstance had not changed at that time. The Spirit had just done His work and made these truths come home to my heart, and I was filled with joy and fearlessness. Guys, this is a sign of the Spirit. But here in this passage, we also have a second sign of the Spirit. And that is uh, bold gospel declaration. Bold gospel declaration. Go back to verse 4. It says, All of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so the Spirit fills them and enables them to begin talking about something in a miraculous way, right? And we are told in this passage what they were talking about, and how the means by which they were talking about it. And, of course, we want to just kind of focus on the, the real intriguing part, like the speaking in tongues and, and all of that. But be, and I'll, I'll mention that, but before we get there, let's not rush past what the Spirit was enabling, enabling them to talk about. What being filled with the Spirit caused them to talk about. And, guys, that is the gospel. So what they were talking about was they were declaring, as verse 11 says, the wonders of God in our own tongues. And the word wonders translates the Greek word uh, megaleo, which means specifically or literally the mighty saving works of God. And in this context, and especially made clear by what Peter goes on to preach in the rest of this passage, is that he's preaching, they're sharing, they're declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, the gospel, that's what the Spirit enabled them and moved them, compelled them to talk about. In fact, again, like I said, it, this is made much clearer in, the, in verses uh, 14 through 36, which really captures the very first sermon given on the very first day of the church. Peter stands up, he's got the attention of the whole crowd, and he starts proclaiming the gospel. In fact, uh, his message, and I, again, I wish I could teach that, but we don't have time. And, uh, but if I was to summarize the whole, his whole message in those verses, it's, it's this. He, he's saying, um, uh, how do I sum it up here? It's all about how God had poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus, who the crowd had crucified, but the Father had raised. That's what that message is about. For example, in verse 32, he says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Peter's saying that to a crowd that seven weeks earlier, in that exact city, they had just crucified Christ. And so he's saying, hey, Jesus has risen again, and we're all witnesses to it. Like, you can't deny it. He's not dead. The grave is empty. Many of us have seen him alive. Then he goes on, he says, 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Remember, the crowd had heard this crazy, violent, rushing wind. He says, they're all wanting to know, what's going on? What does this mean? He says, this is what it means. The Holy Spirit has come. And the reason that the Holy Spirit has come, as Joel prophesies would happen, is because Jesus truly is the Messiah and the Lord. And that though we crucified him, God raised him from the dead. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. And what he's done, he's poured out the Spirit. He says, this 
is what the Spirit was enabling him and moving him to proclaim. It's the gospel of God. The whole thesis of his whole message is this in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, spirit, one mark of spirit-filledness is that it moves you. He moves you to proclaim the gospel. To talk about Jesus. Guys, why? Because the Holy Spirit loves to make much out of Jesus. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, makes much out of Jesus. And so when the Spirit enters you, the Spirit moves through you to talk about Jesus and to point people to Jesus and to make much about Jesus. And of course, in this passage, the Spirit does it in a really miraculous way. So that's kind of how they began talking about the gospel. And there's this really unique miracle that takes place. As we read Right? They are able to speak and, and, and the tongues of all of these people that are there. And Luke really goes out of his way to list out you know, that long list of people from all the different nations. Right, It's kind of tedious. Like, we're, like man, why, why are you giving all this information? Well, he's wanting us to see that the Spirit was enabling the followers of Jesus to declare this message in a way that all in one language, in a language that everyone understood. And like, I don't know what that looked like, but they, they're talking, and it seems to be that everybody that's there, though they understand a different language, was hearing what that was being said. It was like there had, at this moment, a universal language that when you talk, everyone understands. And guys, <laughs> that has profound significance. Because, hear this, you know what that means? It means on the birthday of the church, the very first sermon of the church, which was the gospel, God made it through a miracle possible for every single person to understand and to hear it in their own language. So what this means is that the first time that the gospel was ever presented, on the first birthday of the church, it was presented in every language under heaven. Like, is that not profound? Like, I look at that and think, what does this mean? It's just another example that when God says, key verse for our church, that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that on the birthday of the church and the first message of the church, that it goes out in every language of the world so that everyone could be known, everyone could know the glory of God. And that it would go out in their language, in their heart language, because God cares about the whole world. He wants to see the whole earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Because I love what this says about God, that the very first time the gospel is preached, on the very first birthday of the church is preached in every single language. The other thing that that means, friends, and just like I don't have time to get into it, but As a result of this miraculous, like this awesome miracle, like the ground is laid for the, the church, for Christianity, to be the most culturally diverse religion or belief system in the entire world. Because, see, language is the bearer of culture, right? That's communications 101. I'm a communication major, so I'm finally using my major a little bit. Uh, Language is a bear of culture. Well, because when the gospel goes out, it goes out in every language. 
And so there is no language, there is no culture within Christianity that has pride of place. From the very first moment that it goes out, it goes out in every tongue, and so in every culture. And when you compare Christianity to any other world religions and even secularism, you'll see that Christianity is the most diverse religion, belief system in the world. Why? Because no one has the claim, the right to say, our version, our cultural distinctions of Christianity is the right way. No, they all started. It, all, it went out to every culture in every language. Why? God cares about the whole nations. He cares about every culture. As we should too. And when the Spirit fills you, it makes you gospel-obsessed people that talk about Jesus and will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said we would as his witnesses in Acts 1.8. I love that. Well, those are the two signs of the Spirit that we see in this passage. There are others. But when you think about, okay, do you, do you recognize your need for the Spirit? And you evaluate, do I actually see this, the, the, the work of the Spirit in my life? Here's two things to run through. Is there a joyful fearlessness about you? And is there a gospel obsession, a boldness to share the gospel about you? And let me be clear. In Scripture, when, it, when we're told to be filled with the Spirit, that's a command that's given as a continual command. Like, continue to be filled with the Spirit. And so what that means is that uh, there's a distinction between receiving the Spirit, which happens at the moment of conversion. You're sealed with the Spirit. And there's a distinction between that and being filled with the Spirit, where the Spirit is actively working to make these things true to your heart, about who you are and God's love for you and pouring that love into your heart and then giving you this fearlessness and, and giving you this gospel obsession. And the command in Scripture, again, Ephesians 5.18, is to be filled, to continue to be filled with the Spirit. But you will not be filled with the Spirit in that way. If you're not desiring, if you don't even desire to be filled with the Spirit, if you're blind to the need for the Spirit, I mean, think about point one, way back 30 minutes ago. Like, we got to recognize we need the Spirit. We cannot do the job that God has given us to do without the resources He's given us to do the Holy Spirit. And we cannot know the love of God without the means by which the love of God is poured into our hearts, which is the Holy Spirit. And so we need the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, let me just ask you, do you desire to be filled with the Spirit? You may say, yeah, I do, but I, I know I need to be filled with spirit a lot more. How do I, how do, I do that? I don't have time to tell you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post an article this week that's really succinct and really does a great job summing up how, ways to be filled with spirit. And basically it comes down to you've got to drink deeply of the spirit, allowing him to teach, talk to you through the word. And you need to pray, asking God to, to fill you with the spirit. And you've got to believe with faith that you've been filled with the spirit. Those are, those are three things. But the article will explain that better. But you may say, okay, well, I, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever really felt the feeling of the Spirit. To know this joy of God's love for me. To know this fearlessness. To, to ever want to talk to people about the gospel. And as if that's where you are, then, you know, it's worth saying, like, maybe you haven't received the Spirit. And so the way I want to end this message is just to simply tell you, how do you receive the Spirit so that you can be filled with the Spirit? And the way that we see from this passage how to receive the Spirit is drawn out in the fact that 
And the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. See, Pentecost, I haven't really explained this yet, but Pentecost was one of the three big Jewish celebrations, annual Jewish celebrations. And so this is why the, everybody was from all over the country were here in Jerusalem because people would gather from all over the known world. Jews and God-fearers would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Well, Pentecost was the celebration of God coming down on Mount Sinai to give the children of Israel the law. That Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. And so the people would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate when God gave the nation of Israel the law on Mount Sinai. And what's interesting about that is that what happens on the birthday of the church on Pentecost and what God did on Mount Sinai is very similar to each other, but also very dissimilar. It's very similar in that in both cases, God came down. In both cases, God gave his people something, a message, one, the law, but here the gospel. But in that sense, after that, it's very dissimilar because that message was very different. Because the law that God gave on Mount Sinai was, Sinai was the law of what they must do to be in right relationship with God. But the message that came out on Pentecost was the gospel message all about what Jesus, God the Son, has done for us that we could be in a right relationship with God. And then on Mount Sinai, God came down, but he came down onto the mountain. And when he came down on the mountain, the people uh, of Israel said, I, don't, I can't stand it. I can't stand, we can't stand hearing God. It's scaring us. And so they sent Moses to go be their mediator to go up the mountain to hear from God and take the law of God from God to the people. And when the people sinned, which they did, that's the whole, you know, uh, golden calf story, Moses has to go back up the mountain and intercede on behalf of the children of Israel for God to give, grant them mercy and forgiveness. So he prays for them that God would not destroy them, which God hears the prayer and answers. But guys, on Pentecost, God doesn't come to the mountain. He comes down to each believer. And that when, this, when they hear from God, they're filled with joy and they boldly declare the message of God. And the message is that when we sin, we don't have a mediator that just prays on our behalf. But that we have a mediator who willingly died in our place. So that our sins could be forgiven. And so that we could be reconciled to God. And God's spirit would come and live with us. That's the message. And the reason why that's possible is because the fire of judgment came home, came down on Jesus so that the unique fire presence of God could come rest on each one of us in love. Guys, how do you receive the spirit? It's what Peter says at the end of this passage when talking to the crowd, he says, repent, which literally means to change your mind. And in this context, to change your mind about who Jesus is and believe that Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah, your Savior, who died in your place, that you could be forgiven, that he's the better mediator who's made it possible for you to be reconciled to God 
and have God's Spirit come live with you. How do you receive the Spirit? You believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior that died for you. And in that moment, you receive the Spirit, the God of the universe comes to reside in you. It's amazing. And even right now, you'd have the opportunity to receive the Spirit. Simply by faith, believing that Jesus died in your place. That he rose again, that he defeated sin and death to reconcile you. And you can ask God, fill me with your Spirit and your promise that he does. And the joy and the courage and this obsession with the gospel becomes to become true to you by his work in your life. We're going to end now by taking communion. And what we do in taking communion each Sunday is that we reflect on what Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection. Then in his body being broken, his blood being spilled out for us, we see that what he did to enable us to be reconciled to him, that God could come and be with us and the spirit could come into us. And guys, if you are a believer, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of your sins, the communion table is open to you. And what I want to encourage you to do during this time is to ask the Spirit to make what we're remembering here come home to your heart. That the love that we are recognizing, that Jesus would demonstrate his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ would die for us, have his body broken, his blood spilled for us, that ask the Spirit, God, make this not just be something I know here. Bring it home to my heart that you would fill me with joy and courage and move me to go with you that every man, woman, child in our city would hear the gospel from someone who loves them. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for what you've done for us and sending us your spirit. You know, we acknowledge that we so often ignore the gift of the spirit and we don't even, we have so much to learn about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. And God, I pray you teach us. And I pray that you would move within us, fill us with your Spirit, that we would know your love in a fresh way. And it would lead to joyful fearlessness and gospel obsession. Lord, that we would enjoy you. And Lord, that we would make you known. And God, I pray that even now as we take communion, Spirit, you would do that work in us. Bring this home to our heart for your glory. Amen.